Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Today, I welcome Dr. Tyrone Lodog, an internationally recognized expert in the fields of integrative medicine, dietary supplements, and women's health. Dr. Lodog was appointed by President Bill Clinton to the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy. She served as the elected chair of the U.S. Pharmacopeia Dietary Supplements and Botanicals Expert Information Panel and was appointed to the Scientific Advisory Council for the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. She has authored five books, including Fortify Your Life, Healthy at Home, and Life is Your Best Medicine. On today's podcast, we're going to be focusing on natural supplements and women's health. Hi, Tarone. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on Integrative Oncology Talk. I'm just so happy that you could join us. I am too. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Well, thanks. Um, you know, you're one of my mentors and really a hero of mine and many people in the field. And you have such a old school knowledge of botanicals and healing, uh, how to prepare herbal preparations, how to use natural products. Um, how did you learn all of that? You know, I think that you're obviously a, a great student and you have a lot of experience, but the kind of knowledge you have and the kind of practical wisdom, and I use that word wisdom uh, to really, I think it's very appropriate uh, for you. And you have a great website. It's called drlodog.com if anybody wants to read more and learn more from uh, Tyrone. But the, the cover of your, of your website says where traditional wisdom meets modern medicine for transformational health. And I think you have that, that inner wisdom. How did you get started and, and have that depth of understanding about healing and uh, natural products and herbs, especially those that are found locally? Well, you know, people ask me that an awful lot, and I'm never quite sure what to say because I, I don't remember a time that I um, really wasn't interested in the plants. Ever since I was a very young uh, girl, I loved camping. I, um, I was in the Girl Scouts. I loved going out into the forest. My grandmother uh, and my grandfather were both, um, I would say, probably naturalists. They really loved camping and fishing and taking kids, us kids out. And so I just, I always was fascinated by learning how to identify the plants and how they were used, which ones you could eat, which ones people used for medicine. And that continued from the time I was very young um, till the present moment when I was studying midwifery. It really opened up more uh, exploration of herbs and how women use them and how midwives had uh, traditionally used plants around women's health. 
and and that then spurred more inquiry and curiosity. I was deeply involved in martial arts. <laughs> it was a passion of mine, and um, I was 18 years old when I started doing martial arts, and at that time in the United States, Bruce Lee was just kind of coming on and, and we were just really getting exposed to more of Eastern tradition and philosophy and medicine. And through my martial arts instructor and through um, studying Taekwondo, I became really interested in more of the Eastern tradition and the Eastern use, use of herbs. So it's it's been ongoing my whole life and then of course when i was an undergrad and then in medical school um i just was thinking all the time of well this herb might be able to be used for this or i wonder i wonder if anybody's done any research on this plant for that and now uh, many many years later i've you know i've been lucky enough to study natural medicine, integrative medicine. I've been with the United States Pharmacopeia for 22 years now, chairing various committees on the safety and standards of, diet, of dietary supplements, particularly botanicals. Um, so I, 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 everything from picking the herb in the field to uh, you know, isolating or extracting it in a lab with all the research in between and practical knowledge, I, I'd say that um, my curiosity spans that entire range. And I'm not sure if it's developed into wisdom, but I have accumulated a bit of knowledge over the years, um, which I love to share. I would say a ton of knowledge, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that knowledge. Um, so one of the things I'd like to start off with discussing is related to the regulation of natural supplements. Does the FDA regulate natural supplements? So they are, and this is continues to be a little bit of a myth. Um, the dietary supplements are regulated by the FDA. Mo many of us just disagree with the way they're regulated, the way they were set up. I believe strongly that the FDA should have more oversight, and I believe very strongly that botanicals in particular should be regulated as traditional medicines, as a traditional medicine category. There should be a, a, a category for this. And I think, can, you know, Canada does this. Canada has a traditional uh, medicines category in their national, uh, in their natural health products. And what this would allow is, one, the recognition that many of these plants, like chamomiles and peppermints, and, you know, many of these botanicals have had thousands of years of human experience and that that is its own form of evidence and and we should be able to convey what they were traditionally used for um, as long as we're staying away from treating heart disease cancer you know things like this but for many of the the conditions that people use it for for colds and sleep and upset tummy and I think that this would take some of the pressure off of uh, what the current regulations, are lacking, which, you know, many, there's a big difference between vitamin D or lysine and chamomile. They're just, they're not comparable. And um, having a traditional herbal medicines category, I think would help shape up the industry, set better standards, and also communicate better to consumers what the plant is used for. Um, and, and then I think you have to have, you know, uh, these new extracts that are 
that nobody has ever seen that are extracted with CO2 or very, very concentrated, those those should not be a traditional herbal medicine category because they weren't traditionally used. There are new concentrated forms of these plants that should have some sort of science behind them um, to document their safety. So I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of stricter regulations, broader regulations, and the fact that when the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act was enacted in 1994, there was absolutely no way to predict what the industry would look like in 2019. And it was a congressional act, so only an act of Congress will change the current FDA oversight or guidance. There's no way to change what it is. Dietary supplements were, were the Deshay was a congressional act, and only an act of Congress can undo it. And I'm just not sure the Congress has the appetite or the will at this time to go in and do that. But I think it could definitely be improved for uh, for access as well as safety, access by consumers as well as safety for consumers um, going forward. Thank you. Thank you. I I think one of the things that um, comes up a lot in my dialogue with other um, uh, colleagues of mine is how to view some of these natural products versus how we view drugs. And it gets back to what you're saying about um, the strictness of oversight and how we whether we really know what we're getting um, in what we're buying, as opposed to a drug. I think there's a lot more confidence that even though they have more side effects, you have a good understanding of what you're getting. Whereas with some of these natural products, especially for those people who are not really, really knowledgeable about um, the ins and outs and where to find information, there's a tremendous amount of skepticism. Um, and so, you know, what I find, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, is, is what the difference is between a natural product and a drug. You know, I see some people who are skeptical of the use of natural products they view them kind of like drugs and they say, well, I don't want a drug herb interaction. I don't think any of this is safe. And they're, they're extremely skeptical. And obviously there are other people, whether they're practitioners or patients who feel just the opposite that, Hey, it's natural. So, you know, it should be fine. Um, how do you, how do you feel about all that? And how do you navigate that? Well, I think both viewpoints are, um, are limited, Right. Um, certainly everything that's natural is not safe, and certainly not everything that's not a drug um, isn't, you know, contaminated, harmful, or unsafe. So um, I, I, this is one of the issues, is that the category of natural products is so large, you know, it includes something as basic as a very basic multivitamin, which more than 60% of Americans take, uh, and we don't see we don't see safety issues with basic multivitamins, and it's a natural product. Um, but on the other hand, we have um, we have continued problems with adulteration, especially with botanicals. Um, you know that the, they're not pure. The and I, I don't mean pure as in a as in a single constituent, but it is supposed to be the correct genus and species that it says on the bottle, it should be nothing more, nothing less. And we continue to see adulteration and problems with uh, highly popular herbs, as well as certain categories like for weight loss, for sexual enhancement, erectile dysfunction, et cetera. So, 
you know, I, I, I tell practitioners that they should use useful websites um, such as Consumer Labs to help identify good quality products. It's the same companies that always make the same quality. They're always, they always are what they claim to be. Um, so quality is the first thing. You have to know what the quality of the product is because there's no way to assess safety if you don't know that what you're taking is exactly what you think it is. So quality is really important. And there's a lot of companies that do a great job um, and, that, and that consistently have good quality. What are some of your favorite uh, companies? Well, I think something as simple as Nature Made, which is a common mass product that's available at, you know, gosh, most grocery stores and pharmacies. uh, They have a wonderful uh, quality. They're USP verified, so they have the USP seal on most of their products. Um, They were one of the first to get USP verified. So this is this is one that practitioners should feel very comfortable recommending, and even in rural areas like where I live, you can find them at the local stores. I think then when you go to companies like Gaia or Nature's Way, you find botanicals that consistently are of high quality, um, that constantly make their label claim and are just what they claim to be. So Gaia, Nature's Way, these are very good quality products. And then you have the practitioner brands, which many of your listeners who are practitioners may like, the Metagenics or the Thorn, the Mediherb. All of these are also very high quality and consistently show good quality and independent testing. So they really run the gamut from a less expensive mass brand like Nature Made all the way to uh, more practitioner and expensive brands. Um, such as Metagenics or, or, or Mediherb. Um, so, so there are a number of companies that I think people can trust and use uh, and, and feel good about. I, I think there are two other pieces. One is efficacy and the other is safety. Efficacy, I don't know that you need a lot of efficacy for does it help with a stomach ache. You know, if you drink a cup of peppermint tea and it helps your stomach, how much How much evidence do you need other than it's been used that way for a very long time? Uh, In India, having some fennel seed to quiet your stomach, that's old and been around forever. Do you really need randomized controlled trials? So I think efficacy really depends upon what we're trying to address. Um, If you're talking about cancer, you better have some really good data um, about its efficacy uh, as an adjunctive treatment or otherwise heart disease, et cetera. So efficacy, I think you can use a sliding scale of evidence and you should not exclude traditional use. And then safety, well, safety gets complicated. Safety in who? A child, well, uh, somebody with kidney failure. I think that there's a pregnant woman. I think subpopulations you have to be cautious with um, around, around safety. And then the herb-drug interaction piece, which I think is a huge topic right now and really came to light with St. John's work back in the 1990s, is the potential for certain botanicals to interact with certain medications. Clearly, the more, the more important that drug is for well-being and the more narrow the therapeutic index, meaning you don't get enough, it's dangerous, you get too much, it's dangerous, the more cautious you have to use with introducing natural products into that patient's uh, daily routine, 
I would say the good news about botanicals is that, you know, Bur Bill Gurley and a number of the other researchers that are specifically looking at interactions with supplements and human beings, not just, you know, on a plate or in a bioassay, but in, but in real human beings use, using what we call FDA probe drugs, we are not seeing the extent of interactions that one would have predicted. So um, that's a good news, uh, but, but um, there are more than 2,000 botanicals in the marketplace. Uh, I mean, some very little use, but there's more than 2,000. And we have pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic data on, you know, a few dozen. So uh, I would say be thoughtful um, about, about potential interactions and, and that clinicians are really the ones that have to ask patients, what are you taking? And to maintain an open dialogue so that patients are willing to tell their practitioners what they're using uh, and why. Thanks. Uh, I have a follow-up question about when you recommend uh, taking a, a product versus just incorporating something in your diet. You know, uh, people come to me and there's there's certain capsules that have, you know, broken down mm -hmm. broccoli or um, yeah. you know, like a vegetable yeah. mix, for example. And I usually tell them to just you get that in their diet or, you know, turmeric is a great example where many times we can disagree about, first of all, is it really helpful? Uh, many of us feel like it is, but um, what kind of dose do you need? And is it enough to, you know, use it in cooking the way the way we do in, in Indian food? Or, um, or do you need to take a capsule that, you know, has 3000 grams or something? So um, clearly food uh, herbs, particularly bridge the span between food and medicine, right? So cinnamon, cinnamon tastes great, but cinnamon also has beneficial effects on blood sugar and, and um, fennel and cardamoms and caraway all have wonderful effects on digestion for bloating and easing gas and discomfort. But they're also used in, in, in cooking, garlic and onions and all the allium vegetables have a wide range of bioactivity for human health, these can be easily consumed in the diet. So I, I am a huge advocate for teaching people better cooking strategies using more spices and culinary herbs. So I think people would use less salt and pepper, not that I'm opposed to pepper, but they would certainly use less salt if they knew how to flavor their food better. So I, I'm a huge fan of spice and culinary herbs, and this is a great way to get a lot of chemo preventive, healthy antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, just into your diet by just eating them. Now, if you're talking about turmeric, which you used as an example, turmeric's wonderful to add to the diet for people who are otherwise healthy and just looking to, you know, get some additional health benefits. If you're talking about using turmeric for the alleviation of arthritis or for a gut purpose, you know, with maybe inflammatory bowel, you may have to use a higher amount than what could typically be tolerated in the diet. Doesn't mean you can't use it in the diet, but you might, you might have to actually use something that's more of a standardized extract. Most of these contain 95% of the curcumin, which is the one of the big active groups of compounds in, uh, in turmeric. So I think it depends. Obviously, lifestyle and diet should always be first. We should always be working on that. But there will be cases, such as the example of turmeric, where 
if you're actually trying to treat a condition and you're looking at the clinical studies, you may have to use the amounts that were used there to to achieve the effect you're trying to gain. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm going to use that as a segue to start talking about um, what you would recommend for some of our patients and for uh, people out there who want to who want to consider um, using any kind of natural products uh, and what else they might they might need during um, different scenarios. So the first I'm going to ask you is is when somebody is on chemotherapy. Uh, if somebody is on chemotherapy, what do you think are some of the useful things to do, and also um, focus on natural uh, natural supplements? Well. I think that um, there's some very interesting data depending upon what type of um, chemotherapy somebody's going to be on. So I certainly think most people should be on a very basic multivitamin because a lot of people who come in with cancer already have some micronutrient deficits. So taking a basic multivitamin, you know, not one with 3000% of the recommended daily intake, but a good multivitamin uh, is wise. I think checking a vitamin D level and making sure that people are getting adequate amounts of vitamin D and that, you know, for many people, that's going to be 4,000, 5,000 a day um, while they're while they're going through their treatment if they're very low. I think that's really important given some of the data that we're seeing on um, perhaps some improved outcomes in certain cancers with vitamin D. I also am a, I'm a huge fan of using a lot of the non-biologically based therapies. So acupuncture, if it's offered, I really encourage professionals to recommend it and for patients to use it. Uh, Interestingly enough, when I was going through my own uh, chemotherapy at the University of New Mexico, um, even though there was uh, acupuncture available, nobody mentioned it to me. I kind of had, I knew about it I just knew about it because I knew who was directing the Center for Life. But that was an interesting thing that nobody talked to me about. So if it's available, I think we should actively encourage it for patients who are interested in it. And then I think we should, um, you know, I, 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 and, I, and I think we should tell patients where they can go for the service. I really also like um, guided imagery. And there's a lot of different uh, guided imagery programs out there. I like Bell Ruth Napperstack. Uh, she was she came to visit a number of times at the University of Arizona when I was the fellowship director, and I just think she's fabulous. And she's got some great guided imagery for chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. And a useful website is also the Kaiser website. Um, Kaiser um, Permanente. They have Kaiser's guided imagery has got um, a number of guided imagery uh, podcasts and that available for free for patients to use. I'm curious what you think about intermittent fasting. Um, I, I personally like intermittent fasting for myself. Um, and I've been very intrigued by the, you know, early data suggesting that um, in some chemotherapies like the platinums, there may be, there may be some benefit. You may get, um, you may have fewer adverse effects if you're using the intermittent fasting around, you know, that 72 hours around chemo, uh, clearly only people who are, you know, feel like they can do it, that are motivated, not really cachectic. But I, I was curious what your thoughts were. And if you're recommending that to any of your patients. I am not yet. I am a fan in general of intermittent fasting, but just especially during chemotherapy, I think it's enough just to get our patients not to eat ice cream and popsicles all day. That seems to be the message people get a lot is that 
just eat whatever you want. So just making people aware that you should still make good choices. But where I operate, I feel like we need to still be really conservative unless there's a lot of data. You also have to personalize these messages. And so we haven't been recommending intermittent fasting during chemotherapy at all, but I'm intrigued by it. And the other thing I wanted to touch on is you mentioned something that is really important. And that's that in a lot of cancer centers, a lot of integrative services are available, but it's either because we don't make time during the regular appointments to discuss this, or somehow patients are just not made aware of what's available in the cancer center. We have to do a better job of spreading the message just that this is available to you. And so many times people come and see me in the integrative oncology clinic and they say, I just didn't even know that you had all this. This is wonderful. And I think if more people knew, they would take more advantage of acupuncture and other services like that. Agreed. And I was a little surprised how um, little emphasis was placed on that in, in the primary oncology uh, department where I was. I mean, uh, and I got great care. That's I, I got great care. It's just there was so little thought about what could actually be added to my treatment that actually may help with some of my fatigue or reduce some of the risk of neuropathy or just improve my quality of life. Because I, I, I think that while we sometimes look for very large outcomes, what, if you're a cancer patient, clearly you're fighting for your your very life. But you're also wanting the quality of your life to be as good as it can possibly be, because this is a hard part of the journey, um, this, this treatment, which, you know, also there's, I think, a number of, of herbal teas and things that people could readily use. Um, I like, uh, you know, there's, a, there's like traditional medicinals herbal teas, and these are very high quality teas that are available and you can get them anywhere. Um, as a matter of fact, um, they're sold at many grocery stores now and people that are using SNAPs or on food stamp programs actually can use, can use their SNAP to buy these herbal teas where you can't use them to buy other herbal products because they're sold right in grocery stores. So I'm a huge fan of the traditional medicinals and there's a number of teas that I tell people just to keep around. Um, so like the cup of calm, can be very nice with, you know, your chamomiles and passion flowers and things like this that are, that can be very soothing in the evening um, and, and calming and quieting. There's another one called the Rote Coat. You may have heard of this Rote Coat. Um, it has marshmallow and slippery elm and just these very soothing um, herbs that for many people as they're going through um, their treatment, they get, they may get some sore mouth, um, dry mouth and the these this these demulcents these herbal demulcents can be very soothing um, in that case. I also I am a fan of zinc um, zinc for protection of the taste. I think that this is again an area that we're we're looking at more and more data. But I, I'm going to tell you. Uh, it's one of the things that doesn't seem to really get a lot better if you if you really lose your sense of taste or you get that altered taste during your chemotherapy treatment. It doesn't seem to really come back the way it used to. And the data on zinc, I think, is interesting enough that it's one to at least consider as patients go through their treatment. I'm curious where you stand on that, too. You know, to be honest with you, I haven't been using it for prevention, but maybe I should. Um, so 
I end up giving it when I have patients who develop some symptoms. But as you said, at that point, it's really hard to get the sense of taste back. And you just hope that after chemotherapy is done, it'll start returning. In your experience, does it help prevent taste disturbance? And then do you use the 220 milligram dose? The zinc carnosine, the zinc L-carnosine. Um, and there may be some benefit to that, car- you know, to using that with the carnosine sort of um, salt to it. Um, and, and I do recommend it. And it's hard to know because who's going to go through and not have a problem with taste and who's going to go through and not. So, you know, how, how do you really know always what's working? I do think that in the head and neck cancer and in some of the gynecological cancers, when they gave zinc, the preservation of the taste was was compelling enough given the safety of it um to to to, to look at it um so the zinc l carnosine um 75 milligrams you know 50 to 75 milligrams two to three times per day um you know i took it myself I, <laughs> you know it was like one of the things i was thinking of is i just like i really love food i love the taste of wine i mean there's certain things i just really enjoy and um, I, I thought, you know, and I asked, I asked if it was, if anybody had an objection, nobody had an objection, but at some point you got to start swimming upstream to see what can we do to prevent neuropathy? What can we do to prevent taste changes? Because as you and I both know, some of these things are difficult. Once, once they're established, they, they can be hard to reverse. Um, so so I, I, I just wanted to put a plug out for some of the T's. I think, uh, you know, these are not as strong as a lot of the capsules and the tinctures, but it doesn't mean that they're not effective and that they can't be used to soothe the mouth and throat, uh, that they can't be used to help ease tension and anxiety, um, provide comfort. Uh, and if you're going to use them, just use a very high quality tea and, and recognize that some patients going through may have limited income. And uh, and that was something I learned recently was that uh, these teas that are sold in the grocery stores, like the traditional medicinals or the yogi teas, are actually covered by SNAP, are, ca- are covered by the uh, what used to be the food stamp program. So it makes it a uh, you know easy for people to do ginger. There's organic ginger tea as well, and we can debate if ginger helps with nausea. Uh, or vomiting associated with chemotherapy. But for many people, drinking ginger one to two days before the chemotherapy often um, often can help them feel better during the day of chemo. So again, these are just some other strategies that people may want to think about. I am relatively conservative when it comes to um, you know, using a lot of other types of, of herbals. I, I think there's some interesting data on milk thistle that was done um, looking at hepato protection. Um, you know, I think the problem with milk thistle is you do have to get up to a bigger dose. And the data is pretty clear that milk thistle needs to be dosed three times a day to kind of keep a steady state in the bloodstream. So, you know, you're talking probably closer to 760 milligrams of the standardized extract instead of 420. There, you know, uh, hepato protection, possibly renal protection uh, may, may be there. But, um, you know, is that something you'd use if there was liver metastasis? Uh, no, would be my answer. I mean, I actually want the toxin to do as much as it can in the liver if there's mets to the liver. And so I would not give milk thistle, which would protect possibly the cancerous cells as well as the normal cells. So 
some of these things, you know, like I, I get asked a lot about milk thistle, and I, I, I think it's an absolutely amazing plant for protecting against drug or toxin-induced injury to the liver uh, and, and possibly to the kidney. But then you have to think, you know, am I addressing tumor in the liver? And if that's the case, I would say no. But uh, I am intrigued by the plant. And I think we underuse it in some cases of drugs. And I'm talking outside oncology, but, uh, but, but drugs that have potential hepatotoxicity where they're of necessity to the patient, but you could add milk thistle as an agent uh, to protect the liver while still getting the benefit of the treatment. So it sounds like during chemotherapy, you're relatively conservative with adding too many natural products. You know, a lot of people are um, are quick to use a lot of botanicals. I would say it's fine to add botanicals into the into the diet during chemotherapy, or to take you know in the middle if you're going in every 21 days, you know, to to discontinue things three to four days before and three to four days after. Um, but you know, I think one wants to be, I think one during active treatment as much as possible wants to leverage mind-body, acupuncture, manual medicine, exercise, all of the other things before bringing in a lot of, of, of supplements. Um, you know, glutamine, how many of us were recommending glutamine? Um, not only for mucositis, but also for neuropathy. And then, you know, there's been a question about glutamine receptors actually on the tumor cells and perhaps acting as a fuel. And so, you know, and I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But, but this shows how sometimes we've gotten very excited about something and then research comes along and, and we're not quite so sure. Yeah, I think that the key word you mentioned there is research. Um, I know I've gotten in conversations with folks um, who feel you know, kind of strongly about giving glutamine. And I've always been in the other camp where um, if if I'm not sure that something's really going to be helpful, then I stay away from it, especially, like you said, during active treatment. And, you know, many of the, of, uh, the, the uses for things like glutamine are for recovery of your, of your normal cells. But, you know, as somebody who does give people chemotherapy, I know that these things are toxic. But my focus is not just on the normal cells. It's obviously on the cancer cells. And so I say, you know, what's the point of rescuing the normal cells if you're also possibly, and we don't really know, but possibly rescuing some of the cancer cells? So I tend to be um, a little conservative about anything that I think could potentially, uh, you know, make things uh, harder to treat. You know, so so on, on glutamine itself, I, I personally don't recommend it. Right. And now I think that, you know, people want to add maitake mushrooms. They want shiitake mushrooms. They want to add more garlic or onions. You know, all of these kinds of things I, I think are wonderful. Golden milk. You want some turmeric. You want, you know, some golden milk in the evenings. I think all of these are just fine. But I want to I want to be really clear from my perspective as somebody actually who um, you know has has gone through chemotherapy and radiation myself, and everybody had an opinion on what I should be taking. It's like you know I am committing to this treatment, and I realize it is extremely toxic, and I'm going to I'm going to trust in my body to get through this, and then I'm going to do everything I can to get it strong. Uh, once again. 
And, and so I believe that there's an awful lot that can be done post-treatment. And, and I will also just say this, that, you know, post-treatment, a lot of times it's like, okay, now go back to your primary care provider. We'll see you in whatever for another scan or for a blood test with no real clear guidance on how you're supposed to now move forward after your body has literally been assaulted by these amazingly strong, powerful, and often incredibly effective treatments. There's no pathway now for you to deal with the side effects, the after effects, the getting back to being strong. So if I was going to have a comment on where I think oncology and primary care as a primary care provider, I think we really kind of miss the boat in helping patients while they're undergoing treatment to say, we're going to, um, we're going to do everything to help you get through this treatment. And we offer acupuncture or we have massage, uh, we have support groups, um, you know, I want to recommend One Bite at a Time by Rebecca Katz. It's a great resource and book if you're having problems eating. But I mean, we're going to do all that. And then after you're completed, we're going to create um, a program together for you to get you feeling strong and healthy again. Because that's actually not common, that last part that I just said. And I think that's where integrative oncology can really bridge that gap as well as just cancer survivorship in general. The concept of cancer survivorship or thriving after cancer and bringing that in earlier so that somebody doesn't have to feel like they have to wait five years after a diagnosis to really be getting all that information about how to get back to living their exactly. best life. How about when someone is undergoing radiation? I think at that time, we tend to just let the radiation oncologist just manage if there are radiation burns, etc. But are there things that you think can help reduce the risk of radiation dermatitis or some of the other symptoms that might happen with radiation? Yeah, so um, I think radiation can be a beast. <laughs> I mean, I really do. It's the fatigue, just, you know, and then if you should begin to get the dermatitis, the burn, just how painful that can be. So, um, you know, hydration, hydration, hydration. I just have to say, I think we underhydrate some people. They end up getting very dehydrated. And just how you can see people perk up when you get them some fluid, you know, you're just going to go ahead and give them some fluid, both chemotherapy and radiation. There's a couple things that I like um, that I actually tell a lot of friends, family, and patients. Is one, I think you can consider the myoderm. Uh, the the cream, you know, with the calendula and that in it and the aloe. I think that this can be a very useful, but but use a lot of it, right? I mean, apply it, uh, apply it uh, regularly, not right before radiation, but be very aggressive with it afterwards. I also, I also, um, you can make your own sort of green tea extract spray, which is fairly easy to do based on what the research showed. You can take two or three um, green tea extract capsules and open them up so that you're getting somewhere around five to 700 milligrams of EGCG and just put it in a liter bottle, shake it up and mist it like over the breast area and just mist it, you know, just as often as you're thinking about it, you're just misting it onto the tissue um, instead of having to go, you know, find some extract that you may not be able to find, you could make your own, your own uh, green tea extract that can be applied to the tissue. 
The other thing I would say is for pelvic radiation, do not forget to be able to use, you know, lidocaine. Um, just be able to give some topical lidocaine um, that can uh, that can be applied to the urethra, in, into the into the rectum, uh, the, into the anal opening, so that people can uh, can urinate and and ha- and stool without exquisite pain. Uh, that's something I think is just like that should be far more standard because, boy, it's like urinating glass. Uh, and so anything you can do to really uh, help with that pain. And and so some of those kinds of things I think are um, we sometimes forget about, but they could be so practical uh, during radiation. I have a question. I have some anecdotal experience of a few people who use topical frankincense oil and they say they have dramatic effects on their radiation areas. Have you ever experienced that or seen that? No, I would tell people just to be cautious if you're using oils because oils keep heat in. So be careful if you're using an oil. It's fine to use as long as the skin is already not reddened, right? But uh, putting oil on something that's already red and, and hot tends to trap the heat and make it worse. Frankincense, also known as Boswellia, um, is a very powerful anti-inflammatory, though, and uh, and I would that and myrrh both. I would have absolutely no surprise that people may say that that is really working for them. None at all, based upon you know my use of it over the years, and also just the research on it. Uh, both frankincense and myrrh are very um, powerful topical anti-inflammatories. But again, I would just urge some caution. Uh, with putting a, because these oils have to be delivered in a carrier oil. You can't put them on the skin undiluted. Um, frankincense oil is an essential oil. So you, you, you would have to put it in a carrier oil. And I just, I just would urge caution. I've had patients for a variety of things, put oils on red hot skin and make it worse. So let's talk about survivorship. I want to ask you now about, let's say you have a woman with breast cancer who's done with her treatment and we're trying to just follow them and just prevent a recurrence. What are the kinds of things that you think are helpful for prevention and for the survivor or thriver who's trying to prevent a recurrence? Well, so she's not taking any hormone therapy. We're just, she's done and, and, and we're trying to rebuild her strength. Yeah. So all of the things that are important, exercise, 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 you know, exercise, uh, low glycemic load diet um, that she's going to commit to for a very, very long time. So that may require a nutrition consult, right? To, to sort of help her really understand how do you eat a wholesome diet that's really low in, in, in processed foods and refined sugar. Um, alcohol would be another big one for me. Um, I know this is a hard one because many women enjoy, you know, their wine or their martinis, uh, but I... I am pretty much, look, alcohol should be reserved for a special occasion, you know, anniversaries, a birthday, wedding, things like this, but really cutting back and out the alcohol. If you're trying to prevent recurrence, especially in a breast cancer, I think that's really high on the list, including wholesome soy foods, I think is very fine if she enjoys, if she enjoys soy. And then all of the things that, uh, you know, I, I personally am a fan of turkey tail of the uh, turkey tail mushroom, um, Coriolis or Tremetes um, versicolor. Uh, I, I was, I've long liked the mushrooms for healing and for rejuvenation. 
But, you know, there's there's been research on the turkey tail looking post breast cancer, including in women who are on hormone therapy on aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen, actually showing benefits. So, you know, for a lot of women, they're like, is there something I can take? You're telling me exercise, healthy diet, limit my wine. And I, I'm a big fan of the turkey tail. I don't see any downside and I see a potentially a lot of potential upside. The host defense turkey tail mycelia because there's two different kinds of forms of mushrooms that are available, the mycelia and the fruiting bodies. But the that was what was studied, was that host defense turkey tail mycelia. And that's generally what I tell women to use uh, if, if they want to pursue it. Um, when it comes to other things like, you know, indole, three carbonyl, dim, you know, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't use these very much, to be really honest. Um, I, I, they're, they're not high on my list. Uh, green tea, I think, is useful. If a woman is taking a green tea extract, I do say be cautious with taking that on an empty stomach. The data is pretty compelling that if you start taking these concentrated green tea extracts on an empty stomach, uh, that's a big hit that your liver takes. These condensed tannins just kind of go right to the liver. And we see, not rare, but actually, you know, maybe one to six percent of women in that Minnesota study actually developed elevated liver enzymes and and a small number of pretty significant liver harm. So if you're going to use green tea extract because you believe that it may help prevent the recurrence of breast cancer or prostate cancer, because I get asked that one a lot too for prostate, um, I would just say if you're going to take the extract, make sure you take it with the largest meal of the day. Don't take it on an empty stomach. Uh, and if, especially if they're at those doses of uh, 500 milligrams per day of uh, standardized green tea. So some of those are my favorite things. And then, and then again, you know, just whatever might be left, you know, how is she feeling? What about vaginal dryness? Um, you know, is she having hot flashes? Um, so, so part of this then just becomes the integrative care approach, which is, you know, how are you doing? with your life and where are some areas we may need to address. What about any other natural products like turmeric or melatonin? Are those kind of things that you commonly recommend? So I like um, turmeric. I like it in food. So for, for some women, if they like it, adding it to food, smoothies, you know, there's a lot of turmeric booster powders now that you can, you know, I teach women, you can take a teaspoon of turmeric and put it in a cup of yogurt and then use that to spread on your fish or chicken, right? I mean, so there's there's lots of ways to include getting turmeric in the diet. If she's having more things where there's more inflammation, um, there there's joint pains or arthralgia, there's other things going on, I may uh, recommend a, a, a stronger dose of turmeric, meaning that it's a standardized extract that has more curcumin in it. But a teaspoon a day um, for many people, uh, which is almost 3,000 milligrams of turmeric, um, can be quite a healthy addition to the diet. But if they need something more, I'll often go to the standardized extracts, about 1,200 milligrams per day. Now, you asked about melatonin. I'm a huge fan of melatonin. I always have been. And uh, I do think, you know, we're using melatonin in some solid tumors. And, and, you know, it has a lot of very interesting, broad effects on the body. Um, and so if a woman is, especially if she's having difficulty with sleeping, I certainly would recommend melatonin. And, and you know, I might recommend melatonin 
anyway, especially if she's over the age of 50 um, and we're looking at, uh, you know, long-term prevention of recurrence. Melatonin for sleep is usually dosed much lower than what would be used in a, in a, uh, somebody using it for cancer purposes. Uh, and those it's often 10 to 20 milligrams, maybe even higher. Generally for sleep, we're at two to three milligrams of a sustained release or an extended release. Well, we're going to get more into melatonin and sleep in a few minutes. Is there anything else that you're really high on? I'm also a huge fan of vitamin D. Uh, I think that we know the benefits of vitamin D. And so if you've got somebody coming in really deficient, uh, I think I think taking adequate amounts of vitamin D is important. Um, interesting, the vital study, uh, the one with vitamin D and omega-3s, you may, uh, I, they're presenting some of their data um, at the North American Menopause Society meeting coming up. And I saw that while the vitamin D itself did not reduce cancer occurrence, that it did reduce um, significantly cancer mortality um, by, by about 25% in the adjusted um, analysis. And, you know, and, and that's not insignificant. So vitamin D, very important overall. And uh, this vital study that's used 2000, I use a vitamin D for five years uh, or, and or omega-3s, I think is beginning to show us some interesting data. And so, you know, as somebody who may be trying to prevent cancer, making sure you have adequate vitamin D is important. And if you are being treated for cancer, making sure you're not deficient, I think is important. What about uh, for some very specific symptoms that people get through treatment? You know, you mentioned kind of afterwards, you know, how do I uh, deal with some of the side effects that I've had? Um, I'm going to hit on a few and just uh, throw some some different options out there for uh, these symptoms. One is neuropathy. Neuropathy is really common after a lot of chemotherapy drugs like platinums or taxanes can be very difficult. You know, there's painful neuropathy. There's also numbness, which I don't think any of us know how to fix. But if somebody has pain, painful neuropathy, et cetera, uh, what are the kind of things that you recommend? Well, and again, during treatment, you know, could be vitamins be helpful? Could alpha lipoic acid be helpful? And I think I think we could debate research on these. Um, some studies showing yes, some no. But but during the treatment, there may there may be some potential benefits here. Um, and then afterwards, I will just tell you, I think neuropathy from whatever cause, uh, chemo related or diabetic related. I mean, you know, we see a lot of neuropathy in primary care. I'll just tell you, I think it can be a beast. Um, I am uh, uh, clearly we use things, you know, like pregabalin, gabapentin, you know, a lot of these things, uh, people don't like the side effects, they get some benefit. Um, I would also say, though, that this is an area for marijuana that I think is very worth researching and, and studying. And, and, you know, for instance, Canada has concluded that marijuana can be quite, you know, quite beneficial in neuropathy. And I, I uh, you know, we, we're out in front of our skis with cannabis a bit in this country because of our legal system, the, the regulatory legal issues. It has hindered research to a large degree on a treatment that could be very beneficial. And so I, I personally have patients in New Mexico, if you go onto our re register of uh, medical cannabis and what it's being used for, uh, 
a very large number is being used uh, for chemotherapy-induced uh, complaints, including neuropathy, and patients say they're getting benefit. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. I think one of the things, I talked to Dr. Uh, Donald Abrams about this also, and um, I think marijuana, um, it's it's worth trying. I think that uh, when somebody already has established neuropathy, uh, it can be very frustrating. Um because, you know, most of the conventional treatments are really about masking the pain. Right. And I don't actually think that we have a real solution yet. You know, there are some novel ideas. There's, uh, you know, different ways to kind of uh, modulate the the, um, the pain pathway, whether that's through acupuncture or through different types of therapies that, uh, that do that. I think that's one way to go. But I, I think we don't really actually have the solution because what I think people really want is for their nerves to, to be healed. And um, I think after the fact, it's kind of tough. So I think when, when we get to a point where we can do more prevention, that's probably going to be uh, more efficacious than kind of six months or a year afterwards when somebody already has a lot of symptoms. But definitely I would um, offer uh, marijuana in yeah. that situation. What do you recommend for fatigue? Well, I think that there are a lot of adaptogens or herbs, plants that can uh, have a beneficial effect on both mental and physical fatigue. And I will just say the fatigue can be absolutely debilitating. I mean, just people think they're tired. No, no, no. Fatigue is not being tired. It is. It's brutal. Uh, and, and that makes it harder to, you know, get up and make yourself something to eat. It makes it harder to go exercise. All the things we know are good. So the fatigue, I think we have a, a broad array to look at when it comes to perhaps the, uh, the adaptogens like panics, ginseng, uh, rhodiola, uh, which has long been used for mental and physical fatigue. Uh, I, I think that some of the mushrooms can be beneficial here too. They also have an immune component, but Panix ginseng and rhodiola in particular, both are adaptogens that have been traditionally used during convalescence, ginseng in particular for convalescence. There was a study, as you know, multi-center trial looking at eight weeks of use with two grams per day of American ginseng. So, so that was, was grown in Wisconsin, American ginseng, during active treatment chemo radiation for a variety of cancers. And there was some suggestion that it improved fatigue um, during the active treatment. Didn't do much after the treatment was over. Um, I, I think this was an interesting study. In one, I think that it... Uh, it was good because there was enough preclinical work done to show it doesn't interact with medications. It, it's, it's quite well tolerated, uh, can be safely used. Uh, but the, the, the difference is, do you take it during treatment or do you take it after? And in that study, it clearly showed that it was more beneficial during treatment than it was afterwards. On the other hand, rhodiola, which I use an awful lot of, um, rhodiola, it's a very stimulating adaptogen, grows in the very northern uh, climates, so in the Arctic regions, and it has been used by every single group that lived where it grew for mental and physical energy. And I will tell you, after chemo, uh, many patients complain of this kind of chemo brain, this kind of just, gosh, I'm, my mental fogginess and I'm tired. And rhodiola 
in my experience, many, many people find that it gives them more energy, that they feel more uh, awake and aware. It is one of the few adaptogens that is recognized uh, by the Europeans uh, for stress and mental fatigue and weakness. So that sounds actually like a lot of our patients that we see after they finish treatment. So I love this class of adaptogens. I think that, uh, that many of them can be very beneficial for somebody who is uh, trying to increase their energy and improve, find their way back to being well. I'm curious what you thought of that ginseng study. Uh, it was published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually use American ginseng uh, for patients with fatigue as well. Um, so I, I, I follow the same, um, the same research uh, from that study, and I, I use two grams per day. I haven't actually um, had people say they have yep. a ton of benefit. Yep. So this is one of those where I think, I think that we, we just need more research because what happens is that us as clinicians – we are looking for something to hang our hat on. And it's not that American ginseng is better than ashwagandha, for example, or anything else. But because we're so, um, we're, we're so blind in terms of what dose and, and what to use, we want something to kind of hang on to. And so we say, well, there was a study that used two grams. Let's do that. And it becomes uh, a, a legitimate option. And we just need more of those, of those options but also a sense of, uh, of nuance, I think, because for some people, maybe that's not enough, or maybe for some people, you know, we could be more precise in the future and have a sense of who American ginseng is going to work for and yeah. who it's not. And yeah. I feel like all of oncology is moving in that direction anyways. And so I think integrative oncology needs to move in that direction where we hopefully through research, we have some sense of, of really personalizing our approach. More. Right. And, 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 and also the American versus, you know, Asian ginseng, right? So um, very different profiles, uh, panic ginseng, very different profile of its constituents. Um, so we chose American ginseng, but what about rhodiola? Ashwagandha is far more calming and, and quieting, anti-inflammatory, you know, where, to, where would it fit? So research is part of the way we unlock some of these mysteries, especially during treatment. I think post-treatment, we have actually a fair amount of data um, in, in individuals who are stressed, tired, fatigued, burned out, chronic fatigue, that we could actually extrapolate a lot. I think one of the big gray areas is during active treatment where there's, there's not as much data as we'd like to see to support the use of some of these products. We continued talking with Tarona Lodog about symptom management and women's health on the next episode of Integrative Oncology Talk.